invite you to give your attention to the scriptures with me to 1 Corinthians 6. One of the letters that Paul wrote that we have for in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our text is going to be the last two verses, 19 and 20, but we'll start our reading at verse 9. This is God's Word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then in connection with... Um, That reading, I'd like to read with you Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Do we have that on the screen? Lord's Day 1. There it is. Um, If you're not familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, this is one of the three confessional statements that form the confessional statement of this church. And um, it's just a very helpful summary of what Scripture teaches on any number of topics um, that make up the core doctrines of the Christian faith, especially this Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1 and 2, um, is is just a beautiful summary of really what it means to be a Christian and and the heart of it. So let's hear these words. Uh, Actually, yeah, I'll read the question. We'll all do the answer. Yep. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong to body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. 
Very good. So I've titled the message, Who Am I? Who Am I? That's the, the question of our identity, and it's a massive question, isn't it? You could try to answer that question this way. You could say, I am the sum total of the various chemical compounds, the water, the salt, the fats that constitute my body. I am my genetic code, which provides my unique biological nature. But if, you're, if you answer in that way, then you're answering the question, what I am, not who I am. Who I am is shaped by the people in my life and the places of my life and the actions and the events that I've experienced. So one question for us as we consider this together is, how much of who we are is self-determined based on our desires and our thoughts and our feelings, and how much of who we are is determined by external factors, like the different people in our lives, the different places, the different events, the different experiences? How much is self-determined? How much is determined by external factors? And in answer to this, very briefly at the beginning here, I want to say this. God is the great external factor. God is the great external factor. He has everything to do with who I am, with who you are. And so the first question actually we want to ask is not who am I, but who is God? And then as we explore that question and as we understand who God is, then we can know that I am not my own. But through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I can also know that I belong to Him. So that's the movement through the message here. First, I am not my own. Secondly, I belong to Jesus. Well, there's this myth that persists out there that we are free actors as human beings. Free actors. That we are completely independent in terms of our choice and our will. Now, I want to notice right away with you that Adam and Eve were created with free will. Uh, they were created with the ability to choose for good or for evil. And we are responsible as human beings for our actions. They are our actions. But we are not free of all external influence and authority. And we're going to see that as we go along here. But this real emphasis on the freedom of our ability to choose and, and to act and to will, where does this thinking come from? I suppose there's a couple of ways we could answer that. But historically, I'm thinking of this. We can notice a move away from God in the age of enlightenment. So there is the Protestant Reformation, which hopefully many of us are familiar with, when the church returned back to the Scriptures um, in the 16th century, really, is when we mark that. But that Reformation movement matured throughout the 17th century. And as it did that, there was a new movement growing based on science and reason. And often, this was held up in opposition to religion, either science and reason or religion. And this movement, with a focus on the natural world, had the, um, had, had the um, what do I want to say here, excuse me, this movement focused on the natural world, and as a result of that, the idea of a supernatural being who is the external source of meaning and authority and purpose, well, that was rejected in favor of a view that there's an internal source of meaning, authority, and purpose. So one early thinker that's important here is Rene Descartes. Maybe you've heard that name. He was thinking about the existence of, of humanity. How do we know we're not just figments of our imagination? And then he thought, well, the very fact that we have an imagination proves that we exist. So the famous phrase from him is, I think, 
therefore I am. Thinking, uh, my thoughts, the inner self is key to our existence. The inner self is determinative. It's another important Enlightenment thinker named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and his big insight was that the natural self is the authentic self, that your feelings are central to who you are. And as we live in society, society, he said, has a corrupting effect on a person in the sense that it makes you inauthentic. Certain things you won't say or you won't do, maybe even won't think because of society. So to be moral, he said, is to be true to oneself. To express on the outside exactly what you feel on the inside. That's the moral thing to do. So for Rousseau, our nature is not the problem. But society can be the problem. Our nature needs to be expressed and it needs to be celebrated. Now, starting off a sermon with some philosophy, especially in a somewhat warm building at 2.30, bit of a risky move perhaps. But this is important. And I hope in the language that I just just spoke that you, you hear how relevant this is for today, for our discussions today about what it means to be moral, about the importance of authenticity, about the importance of expressing and celebrating yourself and how you feel. Right? You can see the seeds for much of what is popular today in Rousseau. Now, we're not considered to be in the modern era any longer, um, as it was at the time of the Enlightenment. We are in a postmodern era, or another term that people have used is fluid, an age of fluidity. And that's actually a good description for where we're at, because everything is fluid, right? And nothing seems to be stable. Everything is relative. It can move around a bit and shift. And you can see that in the transgender question. Even my sexuality can change today. And there's other attempts at transformation that we see Throughout society, gaining in popularity, the ability to change my age, that truth about who I am, or, or to change my race, we probably should say ethnicity, or, or even to change my species. There are people who want to be animals. And this is the path we follow when feelings are king, when there is no external source of authority to override me, then I become the only ultimate authority in my life. This is a worldly way of thinking, obviously, uh, but you can see this impact on the thinking uh, uh, of Christians as well um, in the church. There's a challenge these days very common uh, to the idea of committing to the church. Right? We talk about the idea of church membership, a very biblical concept, a very questioned concept these days. Um, the, the whole New Testament assumes the importance of church membership and speaks to that. That there is the body of Christ, Christ is the head, we the members. But that is something that is hard for many today. Uh, there's also the idea of receiving correction from other Christians. Spoke to this a little bit this morning. And, and that is a challenge to, to both uh, be brave enough to give the correction, but then also to receive it. Because many people will say something like, who are you to admonish me? In other words, what authority do you have as somebody outside of me to speak anything to me and my inner self and how I feel and what I desire? So there's this question of freedom that we're addressing here as we begin. There's also the question of belonging. 
That's an important word for us this morning too, belonging. We want to be independent, but we still all have a desire to belong to a group, to belong to a community, or to something bigger than ourselves. We all want this. One author, uh, Rosalind Wiseman, says, we all want to feel a sense of belonging. This isn't a character flaw, but it's fundamental to the human experience. Our finest achievements are possible when people come together to work for a common cause. School spirit, the rightful pride we feel in our community, our heritage, our religion, and our families all come from the value we place on belonging to a group. Uh, Certainly, we we see um, the wisdom in what Ms. Wiseman says. Albert Einstein Although I am a typical loner in my daily life, and you think about him, right, a a very out-of-the-ordinary kind of person in the history of the world, although I am a typical loner in my daily life, my awareness of belonging to the invisible community of those who strive for truth, beauty, and justice has prevented me from feelings of isolation. So so two different kind of quotes to say everybody has this desire to belong. But this sense of belonging has shifted. It seems nowadays that, that it's less about belonging to the things that Wiseman mentioned, things like the school and the neighborhood and, and heritage and religion and family, and it's more about ideological alignment, right? I find my sense of belonging in being of this political party or of this activist group, and yet we still have this desire. We all are seeking for belonging because we hope to find purpose in our belonging, even as we seek to express ourselves authentically, thereby celebrating our absolute freedom to be who we want to be, who we are in our inner self, our natural self, we still have this also search for belonging. But as we hold on to this concept of freedom or attempt to as a society, we have to say that this concept is a myth. It really is. Um, For the natural man, it's a myth. When some of the Jews suggested to Jesus that they were free, do you know what he said? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Hebrews 2 explains this further. In Hebrews 2, we read there that apart from Jesus, apart from his accomplishment through his life, death, and resurrection, the devil has the power of death. And this is because the devil is the one who instigated man's sin. He said to mankind in the very beginning, you should do this, and we did. And the consequence of that sin is death. And so all who are sinners have, Hebrews 2 verse 15 says, have through the fear of death been subjected to lifelong slavery. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so this is everyone, right? We all are born sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, says Scripture. We, we are born sinners. And sin does enslave us. You see that in the, the list of sins here in 1 Corinthians 6. Like if you were to question this idea of how, how bad is it really? Am I really a slave to sin because I commit a sin? Well, you look at the list here in verse 9 and 10. We have sexual immorality of various kinds, both heterosexual activity as well as homosexual activity, both. And that's important, right? We shouldn't demonize one sin over all others. Both are listed. We have theft, we have greed, drunkenness, reviling, idolatry. 
Do these things enslave us? Well, take drunkenness, for example. Drunkenness promises freedom. It promises freedom from the problems of the day or of the week or maybe even of life, right? A blissful escape from the things which are weighing you down, right? That sounds like freedom language. But in reality, what does it do? It just leaves you with an empty wallet, a night of regrets, and a splitting headache. It's not freedom. Or take sexual sin. It promises freedom, doesn't it? Through the indulgence of passions. So that we have even language like release and satisfaction. Language of freedom. And yet, what does that sexual sin do in reality? It leaves a trail of hurt and frustration and emptiness. Not freedom. Idolatry is in the list here. All sin is idolatry. Our Heidelberg Catechism later on says, in uh, connection with the first commandment, that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the one only true God. That's idolatry. Well, this is our problem. Since the fall, humanity has always been searching for something or someone to trust in. It's in our nature. We're created to know God, to love Him, to live with Him, to trust Him. And when we broke that relationship, other false gods immediately began vying for our love and our trust. Some of those gods are sinful in themselves, like the sins that are just mentioned here in the passage. But you know, other false gods are things that are neutral in and of themselves, but sinful when they're viewed in idolatrous ways. Right? We can seek ultimate meaning and purpose in our possessions, in our achievements, maybe even in our family members and our close friends, things that are not bad in and of themselves. But good goods make bad gods. Now, there, are, there is rather meaning and purpose in these things, family and friends and achievement and, and possessions, certainly. And, and that becomes apparent as we think of the question, well, who exactly am I? Right, because you have many aspects to your identity. There's the sex, obviously. Are you male or are you female? Your ethnicity, Caucasian, African, Asian, whatever the case may be. There's your family role, husband, father, son, a wife, mother, daughter, brother, sister. There's your job, minister, plumber, architect, farmer, teacher. There, there's your hobbies, your pursuits, an athlete or a musician, there's perhaps a disability or condition. It might be autistic or diabetic or paraplegic. And then there's your body type. A big part of my identity has been the fact that I'm tall. It's been a very formative part of my life. Maybe you're short or fat or skinny or whatever the case may be. We have all of these different things that make up our identity. They all matter to varying degrees. But none of these things are who we really are. Right? Like at your core, they're not who you really are. The key question is, who are you in? Are you in Christ? Does He represent you? Does He stand for you? Does He determine your relationship with God? That's what matters. Our identity is tied to our relationship with God. That's key for us this afternoon. Our identity is tied... With our, to our relationship with God. Either we've been reconciled to God in Christ, or we are estranged from Him, and we are in Adam. It has to be one, of, one or the other, and this is all that matters in the end. This is your primary identity, because apart from Christ, we remain sinners. That's who we are. That's our category. 
And the sinner seeks a different identity. The sinner seeks a better identity, but the sinner doesn't find it apart from Christ. And you see this in the failure of the LGBTQ++ movement. Why do I call it that? Plus plus? Well, because it used to be called LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual. And then it was LGBT, transgender. Then LGBTQ, to incorporate others who are questioning. Then LGBTQIA, intersex and asexual. Then 2S LGBTQIA+, 2S for those who are native and struggling with these questions, two-spirited, and then the plus on the end just in case. And so I just say LGBTQ+. Notice how I'm not smiling. It's not meant to be a joke. I'm not trying to be funny when I add an extra plus. This is a real struggle that people face, these questions of sexual identity, and we want to be sensitive to that particularly when we're walking with somebody through this, these questions. But I do that because it illustrates the reality of the situation, that the movement can't even define itself. And the, that's the case because they're pursuing the wrong transformation of their identity. They're searching for fulfillment through a lesser identity transformation. And so searching, yes, that part's there, but not finding what they're looking for. And they won't find it either unless they find it in Him, in Jesus. People are restless, Augustine said, and they will remain restless until they find their rest in Him. It's true. And yet the good news, as our passage presents to us wonderfully, is that there is hope in Him for identity transformation. That's the good news for every person, no matter who you are, no matter who you've been. Because notice the language here in the, in the text. There's, there's the various sins listed in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And then verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Some of you used to be like this, different translation. That's huge. Because what that's talking about is identity transformation, isn't it? Moving from an identity in Adam which means in the sin of Adam, also practicing any number of the sins listed here in the text, and moving to an identity in Christ, which means the righteousness of Christ, and being washed, being sanctified, and being justified in Him. So this is the only transformation that's needed. The good news of Jesus is that He has washed us in His blood, we're cleansed from our sins, And the good news of Jesus is also that we have been sanctified. That means we've been set apart for a life of holiness. So we've been moved from this category of sinner to the category of saint. Right? Sometimes we get confused about that word when we hear it in certain contexts. The saints are only the holy people. That is what it means, holy ones. But those who believe in Christ, who are in Him, are saints. That's all of us who believe. We've been sanctified. And the good news of Jesus is that He has justified us before God. We are no longer considered on our own merits before God. That's what it means to be justified. We're considered on the merits of Christ, and God looks at us and He says, yes, acceptable, pleasing. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And now we're considered on the merits of Christ, and God says, you are mine. 
in Him you are mine. When we are considered on the merits of Christ, when we are justified, it's as if we had never sinned or been a sinner. It's as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. And you know what that means? It means we're free. It means we're truly free. Free from slavery to sin. Free from the tyranny of the devil. And he is a tyrant. He's a tyrant who has some power because we gave it to him when we sinned. He's the one who held the power of death over us. But he no longer has any power if you're in Christ. We don't belong to sin. We don't belong to him. We don't belong to death anymore. But we belong to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Sounds pretty good to me. Nobody's saying amen, but maybe a couple of you are smiling. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Amen? But there's a possible challenge that somebody could bring to this. I don't want to be bought by anyone. Sounds like a new kind of slavery. Glorify God with my body? I'd rather live for my own glory. I don't want a Lord. I don't want to be mastered by anyone. Right? No external authority. That was the idea. How do we reply to that? Well, the truth of the matter is you've already been mastered by sin. That's where we have to speak to the natural person. We all got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan said it, but it's true. We all got to serve somebody. So who is it going to be for you? Right? And then the beauty of identifying with Jesus above any other source that we would identify in is he is life-giving. It's as if Jesus says to us, yes, I'm your authority. Let me show you true meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. To actually quote a scripture, he says, come to me, all who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus to us. He's saying, I give you the freedom to pursue life as it was meant to be lived. Jesus is life-giving. And that's because He's God Himself, one with the Father and the Spirit, true and eternal God. He's the one who gave life, creator of all things, unchangeable and, and perfect in all of His ways. And so to imitate Him, as Ephesians 5 calls us to do, verse 1, To imitate Christ is to live the life of heaven. It is to live the more abundant life that this earth can never offer. What does that look like? Well, we have a good idea of that from Scripture. We have summaries of God's will for our lives. We looked at one this morning, Colossians 3. Beautiful passage there in, in verses 1 through 17. And Ephesians 4 is another one that's very similar, parallel passage. And if you look at a passage like that, which describes the new life of righteousness and holiness in Christ, just consider how wonderful His ways are. Because in the second half of Ephesians 4, we're called to things like forgiveness and kindness and to be hardworking and to be honest and to be gracious. Then I ask you, is that not better than the old life of darkness and futility? Or think of Galatians 5. Galatians 5, we know it for the fruit of the Spirit. It speaks of the way of the Spirit and then the fruit that the Spirit produces. And as you look at that fruit, brothers and sisters, isn't it better than the way of the sinful nature and the fruit that comes out of the sinful nature? 
Compare the list with me. Here it is. The works of the sinful nature of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, or love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? Which would you rather? And so the command that we have here at the end of 1 Corinthians 6 is glorify God in your body or honor God in your body. And that's not meant to be a joy-killing command, but a joy-inducing command. That's not meant to inhibit the living of life to the full, but to promote it. And then maybe somebody looks at this and says, okay, but how? I still struggle with sin. It's not an impossible task. Brothers and sisters, we can flee sin. We can pursue righteousness. We can be formed into the image of the Son so that our thoughts and our words and our actions increasingly align with those of Him in whom we find our identity. How do we know that? Because of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You see, we can do these things because God has given us the greatest gift He could ever give. He's given us Himself. His Holy Spirit lives in our hearts through faith, speaking to us and equipping us for everything that we need to live this life. And so, yes, without the Spirit, it's impossible. It's true. Romans 8 says, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, that's the power of the Spirit that we're just reading about there. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. So another way of saying this is that the life of Christ and all that He accomplished is not only at work for us, but He works Himself in us, a continued work. And so our identity our identity is so wrapped up in His that we can even say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so if the Son sets you free to close, then you are free indeed. Wonderful words from our Savior in John 8. If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. We all want freedom. We all want to belong to something that's unshakable and good. And Christ is our hope for that, our only hope. He is our rock that is unshakable. He is the source of everything good. He is the source of love. He's the source of grace, the source of joy. He is our freedom and our belonging. He is our comfort for this life and for the life to come. And so may each one of us live and die in the joy of this comfort. Amen. And now I think I'll take a couple questions, if I may. I think I may, because you do this. I wasn't told about this, but um, if that's okay. Um, and I'm able to work with that, so if somebody has a question or two, I know we just finished. I said amen. 
But if there's something already that you're thinking, um, could you restate that or clarify that or thank you for that or I wonder about that, uh, let's take a moment or two. Of course, when you speak, you think, oh, is it, is it clear? And then the questions don't come, and then you think, well, okay, it was clear or, or, or not. It's one of the two, right? Um, I dealt with some controversial things, things in there. Is there anything there? Yeah, or... Yeah, so one of the beautiful things about 1 Corinthians 6, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, now, because it's in that order, I focused on sanctified in the sense of being set apart. So being uh, in a category of a holy one as opposed to sinner. Because there is that sense, uh, that's what that word means. We are sanctified or we are set apart as believers. Um, but sanctification also has, a, has a, an ongoing sense to it. And that's actually normally how we use that word. So we talk about our justification, which is a, a momentary thing. Uh, you know, the, the hour I first believed, amazing grace comes to me, right? Christ is mine and I am His. It's a one-time definitive thing, justification, being made right with God. But sanctification, in terms of being a process of, of more and more conforming to the image of Christ being made holy, that's a lifelong thing. So even the holiest person in this building, whoever that may be, obviously we're not going to identify him or her, is only has a small beginning of the obedience that God requires of us. That's Lord's Day 44. We confess that. It's true. We all have a lot of work to do. So that's okay. I just preached on discipleship uh, last Sunday, and I, and I said this. The, the very nature of being a disciple is that we're growing. We need to be taught. We need to learn. We, we just keep growing in the faith. So to the person who's, who says, I'm not there yet, none of us are there. And if it's a particular thing, then, then just focusing in on that, that where's, where's the progress? Where's the growth? And, and how can we best uh, support you in that? And, and you pray for that. And yeah, you don't have to have it all together. So that's what I'd say to that. One or two more? That's an excellent question. <laughs> so Adam and Eve were created with a free will to sin or, or not to sin. Maybe you know uh, Martin Luther, one of his works is called The Bondage of the Will, right? The Slavery of the Will. So when Adam and Eve plunged themselves into sin and us with them because he's our representative, the representative of humanity, now we're in a situation where by nature we can't help but sin. We're enslaved in our will so that we will sin. But what the Holy Spirit does when He works in us is that He frees our will. You read about this in the Canons of Dort if you want a summary of it. Um, but He frees our will so that we can once again choose for good. Right? We can once again um, choose for righteousness. Uh, there's a little caveat to that, and that is that even when we're dead in our sin, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, those are scriptural terms, um, because of God's common grace to us, 
So not his saving grace, but his common grace, whereby he's, he, there's a level of kindness to, to all people. We're not as bad as we could be, right? Even an unbelieving pagan, uh, atheistic type will perhaps open the door for you um, or, or, or say something kind to you. So, so not everybody's as desperately evil in that sense as they could be, but we are all totally depraved, right? So totally depraved, but not utterly depraved. When the Holy Spirit works on us, he frees our will. That's a way to think about his original work. And then we, we may sin, we may not sin. And then one day we will have the most free will we have ever had and we will not be able to sin. And that's an interesting thing to think on when we're in the new creation. Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Jesus is in Jerusalem one day, and the crowds, like just tons of people are there for the Passover, and he says, um, come to me, you know, all who thirst, and I will give you living water, and then John says he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the call goes out to everybody, just as we would say we're meant to preach, teach, uh, talk about the gospel to everybody, the call goes out, even from Jesus, who's God himself, um, the idea being you can come, or from Joshua, you can choose, but in the sovereign will of God, there are those whom the Spirit will work into this ability to choose for Christ, to, to have faith, in other words, and, uh, and so those things go hand in hand. From our perspective, we, we know that God wants us to choose from Him. That's His revealed will. But then there's, there's what we could call the secret will or the hidden will of God, and that is unknown to us. So that everything that happens in this world, everything, is because in some sense God willed it. And yet, we know what His will is for our lives because He's revealed that to us. So there's a distinction we have to make there. Not that He has two wills, but that... Uh, this is getting into the deep things. But... Um, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, the, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are for us and our children that we may walk in them. So, so the things that are beyond our understanding, they're for God and God alone, but the revealed things are for us to focus on. And so that's also some, something I'm trying to show you right there. But a couple thoughts. Anything else um, from anyone? Maybe one more. Uh, the qu- question is, maybe people are seeking, they're, they're interested, but they say, no, it's not for me right now. Maybe at another point in life. I mean, if these things are, if, if this, the gospel is what the gospel is, um, what could be more, you know, important? And, it, and if it's later on in life, it could be, it could be that they want to live a certain way. And maybe that way doesn't line up with the scriptures, and they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. Um, but you know, the works of the flesh are opposed to the works of the spirit, so there is that. But also, Christ could come back any moment, or that person could die any moment. We all know examples of people who've died in an instant. 
Uh, Jesus says, be ready. No one knows the day or the moment when the bridegroom will appear. Right? Nobody knows the end of their life. So the, the idea of an 11th hour conversion, I've heard of that. And then the response is, but what happens if, if uh, Jesus comes back at 1030? You know, we don't, we don't know. So, so be ready. What does being ready looks like, look like? It, turning to Christ in faith and finding life. Don't delay. I know a pastor who preached a sermon on that message in a, in a church, and then he died shortly after. it. I think it was the, that very week. Joy might be familiar with that story, Rem Fenema. But uh, in any case, very impactful sermon on the people that he preached it to because he was preaching powerfully about being ready for the Lord's return, and then he died very suddenly. So, okay, I'll leave it at that. That was fun. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word which you have revealed to us. Indeed, it is the power of your word, those ancient words that you have given. Although men wrote it down, they were moved by your spirit to do so. Those words have the power to change us, especially Jesus who is the word in the flesh. He has the power to change us so that whatever we have been, um, we have a future. We have a hope. And we're not there yet at the full realization of what that looks like and the wonder and the beauty of it all. We struggle with sin even now. But Lord, encourage us. Encourage us with the hope of the gospel. Encourage us with who we are in Jesus, that we are not our own, but that we belong to him. And this means that we are free, free from the tyrannical ways of the devil, who has a power, a limited power over this world, but who is completely powerless over the one who is in Jesus so we can say that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so bless us as we go out from here. And with questions that we have, may we um, consider these individually and collectively. And may we constantly explore your word and your truth. And uh, would you build us up in our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name.